out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, journalist. It is the one and only Tom Hagler, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and all that other groovy stuff. He has just brought out a book which is titled Bowie at the BBC, A Life in Interviews, which are um, a huge selection of interviews that Bowie did, as, um, as the title suggests, really, from the uh, his BBC archive, starting in 1964, going through all the decades, including a curious one, which was 2005, with Courtney Pine on a jazz show that he did. This was his post heart attack moment which no one can um, no one remembers actually or even heard of before it's a brilliant book and uh, it's really worth checking out and uh, tracking down and buying a copy so this is the interview with tom so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat actually we get down to that exciting subject really about his own musical journey in life and uh, yes what led him to the world that um, he inhabited later on so yes musical awakenings tom yes we start talking about the wombles and this is where tom picks up anyway you'll get the gist when we start yeah well it, i love the wombles i absolutely adored the wombles i remember doing you know making shapes and figurines of them in art class when i was seven or eight um teddy bear's picnic at two there's actually didn't, didn't david bowie go on about inchworm and that might be a sort of similar sort of um song because teddy bear's picnic if you go down in the woods today, be sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you better not close your eyes. And that it's sinister, is it not? It's you can imagine it being to a backdrop to Scream Five, and so I I love that, and I remember um, my mum getting me that single. So I'd have been two and something, two and a half, or three, whatever. And um, I was holding it and the, we had a Labrador dog and and he came underneath. And I ne- the next thing I did, I looked down, it's in two parts. And that was like my first major trauma. Mm. I remember that. But I love that song. And I think, you know, it's got this, it's a beautiful melody, but there's this sort of sinister, odd feeling that it gives you. And that, that maybe has stayed with me or what I always like with music, you know, you, and you can see that with Bowie. So something like Space Oddity which I also love that they, they reissued that. Uh, I can't remember, but I'd have been seven or eight. And we, I remember we were all obsessed by it in the uh, playground and talking about it all the time and pretending to be a spaceman and what have you. And again, it's a sort of odd song. It's got this lovely sort of melody. It's got this lovely sort of flamenco-y guitar in the middle, but it's sort of odd and minor and it changes and it's sort of, it leaves you slightly uncertain and y- you wouldn't possibly be able to explain those feelings as a kid but clearly you sort of like it because it gets your brain cells tingling. Yes, absolutely. And space was a big thing at that time, wasn't it? You know, going to the moon, there was obviously Elton John and then various films that came out, which obviously I was too young to watch. But it was interesting talking about the Teddy Bear's picnic because when you mentioned those lyrics, I did think, God, I could imagine Leibach doing a cover of that, actually. Oh. Yeah, the heavy Proto-fascist voice. drumbeat or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah they yeah, would love yeah. that because they love playing with those kind of ideas, don't they? Yeah, so yeah. when you were getting into your teens then and you started to buy your own records, what was your first single and first albums you bought? 
first uh first records really those those 20 dynamite hits by 20 dynamite stars so you got this breadth of totally different records half which were rubbish which was a bit like top of the pops you know if you got half of it was good Mm. sort of lucky and then you know first records really anything that that was sort of in the charts I, i love stevie wonder and then probably about 12 13 zeppelin and pink floyd and all that and then 14, 15, sort of Bowie Joy Division and moving into that sort of area. And I think that's partly because of image and, you know, being cool. They were cool. They were different. You know, people seem to identify with them in a way that reflected their lifestyle a bit more. And it just seemed a bit more interesting. So yes. that's probably when I got into him. So that was the so well tied. You did you go to sixth form at this stage in life? Did you stay on and do sixth form? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We're, we're sort of seventy nine. You know, Thatcher gets in conservative government. Then we have yeah. the Falkland War, miners' strike. We have Greenham Common nuclear war. Were you at sixth form all through that period? And then sort just of after, you... probably eighty two. So I remember seventy nine, eighty would have been for me scar. And loving the singles, but finding it a bit strange as well, you know, so adoring the beat and stuff like that. And there was all that two-tone stuff, wasn't there? Rock against racism. So it's all becoming very political. The Clash were, were sort of the, the heavy version of punk, weren't they? With yes. had to be deep and meaningful. And that, that actually, I think, carried on into a lot of the, when I went to university, it was about 84, and they had things like New Model Army. Do you remember bands like that? It oh, was- yes, the 51st State of America and yeah, Vagabonds. And, yes. Yeah, and Nick Cave with, you know, and the bands. And again, it was he- it was heavy and dark and it was all uber laden with heavy meaning and stuff like that. So I, I don't actually go back to much of that time now. Some of it I do, some of it, like The Cure or something. But I, I tend to play the, the lighter stuff of that era, yes. you know, but... Yeah, no, I remember it well. I think that that particular group of people, Nick Cave and various Blixer yes. and uh, various other characters, I think they all had a quite a heavy addiction to quite hard drugs, didn't they? Yeah. So I can you can see why the darkness was there. Yeah. And was it Tracy Pugh as well and um, various other Hugo race, which I think they all sort of virtually recovered from in various states, actually. But then 83 was the, the year of the Smiths appeared in, on our lives, in our lives, didn't they? The Smiths. And then yes. the next five years was the glory of indie pop with obviously Morrissey and Marr. But then there was that world of, you know, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No, the Primitives, yeah. the Mighty Lemon Drops, all those classic indie bands. So you were at university, you'd have been at the right age to sort of ensconce yourself in a in the Army and Navy stall and look kind of mean and moody. Well, and... Yeah, you mentioned the Primitives. So at my university, we supported the Primitives. They won't remember this, but we went in there to borrow a bass amp off them and they very kindly uh, lent us their bass amp. It's someplace in Stoke, I can't remember it. Uh, what I do remember actually is um, they were extremely loud. I became deaf after that concert, and the concert promoter refused. He, he offered to pay sixty quid and gave us twenty quid and said, "Take it or leave it." But you're not getting any more than that. So of course we took it. Um, and the Mighty Lemon Drops, I remember seeing them. They were great. They were like the Doors, weren't they? I, when I yes, they were. Yeah. They were. They were good. So did um, you? So did you form a band at university? Did you go to yeah. university with the? Yeah, like everybody. Quite, like everyone. Yeah. <laughs> people came to the UEA to say, you know, the main thing was to, you know, meet people, form a band, you know, that yeah, was yeah. what we were going to do. So you had the same sort of drive and excitement. 
Well, I think we still, everybody still had dreams of being a rock star and it meant something. And that was, you know, that was a credible um, and, uh, you know, option. And it was miles better than anything else, you know. Yes. What, well, what was what, the good what, so... stuff working in an office or doing advertising or something? So God, yeah, definitely. And and the Smiths you mentioned, I think they, they were interesting, weren't they? Because I think um, while everybody still played guitar, Nobody actually believed, I think, that guitar music had any future otherwise than noodling like maybe Pink Floyd or something like that. And the, the Smiths, I think, that they're, I mean, you you, th you still think of it as Morrissey mainly, don't you, in those lyrics. And um, But actually, the fact that the, there was this guitar sound and it felt fresh, it was familiar, but it was different, sort of reinvigorated that and gave guitar bands a cachet again that i think they hadn't had for a number of years you know yes they would they were taken as they said a hell of a beat in i yeah. think it was a, that was an england game wasn't it um because <laughs> yeah. we had the blitz kids at that stage and they and and the music was going to be electronic and that was it and i do remember seeing on i think it might be in the old gray whistle test depeche mode being really um kind of rude towards people like jimmy page and uh various other sort of folk rock guitarists who were taking themselves very seriously and they, i remember them just making jokes and laughing at them because obviously the yeah. young kids just looked at those old men thinking god go go, yeah. go away granddad with your acoustic yeah, yeah. guitar i was roy harper i think jimmy page and roy harper did a collaboration which obviously no one played or listened to but um you know it's probably terribly worthy. i think i remember that video of them sitting <laughs> in some sort of Dell Dale in Wales near a near a stream. Yeah, because I at that point, um, if if you like Joy Division or you like the Smiths or New Order or whatever, the cure, whatever it was, you had to keep quiet about having um all of Zeppelin's records or most of Pink Floyd's records, all that sort of thing. Certain certain people were okay. Jimi Hendrix and the doors, perhaps in hindsight, because they died. I don't know. But um, you know, they were still okay. You know, the Stones, the Beatles, probably largely still OK, again, because of Lennon. And, yes. You know. Well, I think the Beatles have got a bit forgotten in the 80s until all the CD reissues started to yeah. appear again. And but, yeah, I think I think with the the Smith, they certainly I think that next wave of 16, 18 year olds came along and it was like and they were going to university and suddenly this band appeared and it's like supported by people like the Red Guitars. And then suddenly it was it was that world of John Peel, the enemy. Everybody was very serious. So what what musical did you play the bass then? Yes, bass and, and rhythm and lead. You know, it's one of those things that nobody was very good. So nobody really nailed down an instrument. You know, you're sort of always <laughs> turning around, even occasionally drums, you know, none of which I did particularly well. Um, and uh, I think like everybody, and it sort of dragged on for a couple of years after university, you know, you'd play here and there and you'd, you know, I, I organised a couple of concerts down in um, uh, Eastbourne when I was working on the Eastbourne Herald. I ran, uh, wrote this column called Seaside Rock and it, that allowed me to arrange these sort of concerts for charity for like Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or whatever. And you could, it, I remember one at this huge redoubt, which is this, if you don't know, these circular sort of castles built to fend off a, a, a feared Napoleonic invasion. And, and they look absolutely brilliant, you know, and it was quite interesting. And so all sorts of local bands would turn up through the course of the day and play there. 
Um, and the, the acoustics were awful because they bounce off these circular walls at different times. So it's absolutely appalling sound. Yes. But, uh, nice looking venue. No, not good. What was the name of your band? I had we had millions of names. Um, <laughs> one one fun one was Hip Replacement. I quite like that um, because it reminded me of my uh, my grand's operation. Um, and then oh, I, I think we named one after the the singer's dad's shop, which was something like seventy two Compton House Curtain Fitters. So oh, I'm amazed. Jo- I'm amazed John Peel didn't pick up on that. He <laughs> loved the good. I, he loved a good name, didn't he? Like, yeah. I still, th- I still think renal failure is a great name. Like, but hip replacement is definitely there as well, isn't it? So um, it is definitely. My wife used to see him because she works for the BBC in the lift, and um, she once gave him a tape because the the singer is in our band was her brother that's how i met her and um, he was ever so friendly and he'd take it go you know and, oh yes i'll definitely listen to the you know those crappy tdk yes t- but un- TDK unlike 90s my, unlike my my story there's there's a billy bragg one i think him or andy kershaw corner peel in the car park after a late night you know you know peel comes out at midnight and of course that changes Billy Bragg's life. Um, I never no, heard. No, well, the Billy Bragg one is that Peel said, "Gonna, I would love a uh, biryani," and Billy Bragg went and got one, and then met him and said, "Look, I got you a biryani," and there you go. And obviously, there you go. It's all about bribery. Then I did an interview with a guy, Mick Mick Wall, who just done loads of writing and for science melody maker, and done loads of books. He's he's always bringing a book out. But he said in the eighties. When he sent records, you know, to to journalists, they would tape a bag of cocaine to the record in inside the sleeve just to make sure that they were going to have a good experience and give them a good review. He said it was such amazing amount of bribery. It was, it was like you know, I'm so innocent. I thought, really, you did all that? If, if only said, yeah. I'd known. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there you go. But it's cheaper than the um, the biryani which Billy Bragg obviously bought. So um, yes, and and the rest is history, dear old Billy. Let's not go on to Twitter though. Um, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. So you finished university. We had Red Wedge. Then we had the dance scene, ecstasy. Did did your musical moment sort of go towards journalism at this stage? Yeah, I mean, it, you, you know, yes, exactly. And you don't, you're not near your your pals anymore because you're moving around. So I guess that whole thing of being in a band and everything sort of falls apart, doesn't it? And and then you think, oh God, I better get a a, a regular paying job. And yeah, I ended up in Eastbourne Herald. Then I ended up um, uh, going abroad, working for a, a little radio station in Vienna called Blue Danube Radio, which was great. It did international news. That was fantastic. Um, so, and, and you'd get all sorts of, you know, bands out in, in Vienna that you might not otherwise go to see. So for example, I wasn't a huge fan of U2, but they turned up and you'd, you'd go and see them and they were absolutely astounding, you know, absolutely terrific. Um, so, but again, by that point, of course, music isn't, you know, up, up to a certain age it's, it's certainly for our generation. I think it was the main thing. Yes. Um, and it certainly wasn't by then. It was just something that, you know, 
you well, we, we, you, you were probably sort of then sort of in the world of Britpop. But I think, you, yeah. you know, because Lemmy and Bowie were born the same year, you know, I think it was 47. And they both would say when they were asked about their musical influence, it was it was Little Richard, then it was Elvis, then it was Buddy Holly, you know, Eddie Cochran. But you can only be 16 once and that's the music. Yeah. You can't, however much you might like other bands coming along, you can't really replace that band, you know, like Little Richard. Elvis, you know, that's it. And John Peel yeah. used to say that as well. He he said that when Elvis came along, he, you know, he felt uncomfortable because of, you know, what the punk movement said about Elvis. Because he realized, you know, there would be nothing like it. And then suddenly one day you hear that or Little Richard. Yeah. And you think, this is amazing. This is so radically different to anything. Yeah. And yeah, so I think I think in a way, yeah, when you're when you're 16, 18, that's the music that's going to have that that feeling, and and we know all the l- l- lyrics, don't we? We know all the B sides. You know, it's yes. We buy we buy a ticket to see a gig, and we spend months listening to that record, absolutely. And then they walk on stage, and we just go, "Oh my god, they're there!" Yes. It's you know, it's just yeah, yeah. It, you. You know, we don't care now, do we? We want an afternoon matinee with seats. Yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking about, I remember listening to Joy Division the first time, it was 15, and this this friend, uh, well, I, I didn't really know him, but anyway, he, he gave me this album, he said, you've got to listen to this record. I said, why? And he said, it's the sound of suicide. And then just walked away, and I thought, oh my. And of course, I listened to it, and of course you can, it's absolutely true. And it was like nothing else, because it was, um, I think it was ambient music, actually, is a good way, good enough way to describe Joy Division. And I still adore them. And it's quite funny because I have to sort of occasionally remind myself, you know, he was probably 22, 23 when he wrote this. And here I am at 57, listening to a 22-year-old going, God, this is great. But of course, it's me remembering being 15, listening to a 22-year-old. Um, but it yes. is funny. You go back. It stays with you. You can't, yes, that, that the power of that that music still actually stays with you i think of the i know his play was it the employment exchange at the time ian was was um working in which was all very nice i know kathy unsworth has written a a book on goth you know and uh mentioned ian in there as well he voted for margaret thatcher in 1979 that was one of those things that (laughs) well yeah in hindsight put it down to being rebellious hey that was the (laughs) thing that you shouldn't do so do it yes there you go so so from italian radio then do you sort of veer back into the uk at this stage yeah so yeah i spent spent a few years out there and then and then come back and uh yeah join the beep join the world service world service radio yeah. We love the World Service, don't we? Witness, Sporting Witness, it's all our favorite yeah. programs. Yeah. It's you know, it's the one thing that I always think, please do not get rid of the World Service. Yeah. Um, just... And John Peel, then, of course, he used to have this show. Yes. Uh, I used to record his show, actually. Yeah. And he British would laugh, forces, wouldn't it? it? You know, because he would say the other DJs would get quite, oh, you know, what, do you, what where are you going off to? What show are you doing now? And he'd go, well, I'm doing the World Service. And they'd sort of look a bit snooty and go, almost, like, what's that? And he would point out to them that, you know, the number of listeners he'd have for that one show would dwarf the number of listeners he'd get for the whole year. You know, it'd be like 50 million listeners or something absolutely insane for one show that would be repeated and rebroadcast on the World Service. 
but he yes. used to talk. He used to talk a lot about uh, programming that show, saying he was worried that he didn't want to repeat any of the music that people might have heard and from different work regions, didn't he? So he would always be, you know, he'd have put a lot of time and effort into his. I think it was only thirty minutes because I used to record it quite a bit if I could, yeah, because it was on at obscure and weird times. And yes, um, yes it, it was quite. And I, there was a couple of times where there were records that are still with me to this day, which were heard from the World Service. Did Jimmy Savile also have a program? on the world service as well at that time don't know um by this point, it's late 90s and i don't know what he was i mean well you know i don't know what he what his link then with the bbc was at that point um i don't recall him on on the world service no it might have been the 80s but there used to be some really yeah. interesting bizarre so are you still on the world service at the moment yeah so that's your bag that's yeah your... global news Global yeah. news. We um, yes, we can't get enough. Yes, <laughs> look, wall to wall news. But yeah. look, and then so how did the how did this book, Bowie at the BBC: A Life in Interviews? When when did this idea come come into your consciousness? Um, it, it was really it, it's my uh, it's my publisher's idea, and he just liked the idea of Bowie in his own words. So he said, "Can how many interviews did did Bowie do with the BBC? Is there enough to make a book?" And he'd asked me because I'd written a previous book on David Bowie. And um, I said, you know, actually, I have no idea. There might not be enough. You know, he, did, he said, do you think we can get to two, 300 pages? Do you think there's enough? And I went, I don't know. I'd have to do some research. research. And, and actually, it turns out to be about 40 odd. I think the book has 36, 37 interviews, something like that. It turns out to be 40 or 40 something interviews he did. And it, it's quite nice because it's almost like one a year you know, from 1970, it's almost like that, up until, you know, his heart attack, then he does one after, which is his last ever interview. Um, and that's it. So it's quite a nice sort of, in, in a timeline, it's a nice spread, because you've sort of got this happening almost every year. Um, so you see him changing uh, a lot, his attitude to music and his life, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I it is interesting. And the one thing that I think has thrown everybody from this is, is that he did another interview that no one has ever mentioned um, with Courtney Pine after yeah. his heart attack, which is, so what did you, did you know this interview existed? No. no so right near the, the end, and you would think there's so many books on Dave Bowie and so many people there. And I'm, of course, some of them must have known this, but, you know, I was asking around and trying to say, did anybody miss because you go, you go to the BBC archives, right? And you used to decades before you'd go off to this place called Perryvale and it's got like 40 million pieces of audio in it. Right. But you're not allowed in anymore. So, you know, because people were picking up the cartridges and they'd literally disintegrate in their hands. So it's, it's now specially controlled climate change. You've got to wear special gloves. And for example, I'm not, I'm not allowed in there. So, and I work for the BBC, so I'm not sure who is. So you've got to do it all online. You get special researchers to help you. And you think, oh, David Bowie interview. Does it, you don't find it because it's something like um, 500,000, you know, hits are returned to you. So it's quite sort of difficult. So anyway, you know, I came across this sort of pretty much by accident. Somebody in a jazz magazine had written about David Bowie being interviewed by Courtney Pine. I thought, oh, I don't know that. I wonder where that was. And it turned out to be on Courtney Pine's um, Radio 2 show, you know. And what was particularly interesting to me was that I'd spoken to Mark Riley, who did an interview. He thought it was 
Bowie's last ever radio yes. in 2004, which was a couple of months before his heart attack. And um, and and Mark knows pretty much everything about David Bowie, but we, you know this didn't come up. Uh, and then I found this this interview came across it, and it turned out to be a 14 months after his heart attack. So that is interesting. So it's his last interview. He t- only talks about jazz for 10 minutes. So that's interesting because we all know Black Star eventually comes out. So it's like it's a lot, you know, a lot of hints towards Black Star. And um, and then he also gives this comment, you know, uh, Courtney asks him, how are you doing, man? Yes. He hasn't seen him for a while. And, and Bowie says something like, yeah, I'm doing fine, man. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, I'm getting I'm getting back on track. I've been working out a lot and I'm back on track, I think. Um, and that's interesting because it's the only time I, I think he's hinting back on track, working out a lot to his heart attack. Well, obviously it's. And it's the only reference I've ever found from David David himself about his heart attack. And that's 14 months afterwards. So you can read into that as I try to, various <laughs> things that we can discuss or not. But it, it's interesting to, you know, if you're really into Dave, but what did that mean? You know, 40 months afterwards, usually if you have an angioplasty, a stem put in, you're okay after about six weeks, eight weeks. And you're, so, you know, he, he might've been okay, but obviously it took a lot longer. They had plans, you know, to be back touring within a few months. That didn't happen. That never happened again. So, what happened? Did he get better and then started to feel sick again? Did he get better and then have a second heart attack at some point? You know, we don't really know. I don't know. I have met a few people who, or not met, but I've interviewed a few people who who sort of had a few little bits to do with him, you know, during that period and said he looked quite frail. They were yeah. almost thinking, actually, you know, that probably a few more years after that that interview but sort of were a little bit surprised like oh gosh you do look you do look a little bit like an old man actually you know it was because because he had that timeless quality hadn't he he didn't he never aged he just looked beautiful all that time and it was like still looking fantastic still looking fantastic you know doing those concerts Isle of Wight and then suddenly the heart attack and then yes it it never he never really returns though the videos look quite good in the photographs you remember um when out of the blue that um, what's the song of next the next day album that came out in 2013 where he talks about going back to Berlin? Um, oh, the, and, yes, the 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 video, the, the single, or do you mean the single, the single? Yes, the way we were. Uh, where are something. we now? Where are uh, we now? And it's it's a really moving, beautiful record. Um, but it, you know, it's quite interesting because the last time most people would have seen him would have been on his reality tour or Jonathan Ross, where, like you say, he looked astounding. And then suddenly he is an old man uh, making himself with these sort of strange masks they put over these figurines look even weirder and older. And I thought, wow, that is incredibly brave for somebody who's um, not quite traded, but was known as this beautiful visual artist for so long to suddenly come back in the public consciousness as if he's aged 30 or 40 years almost overnight and he didn't care and um you know and, and of course it's tied to these very emotive uh painful nostalgic lyrics um where you feel he's saying he's saying goodbye to his life yes. he's taking chunks of his life and he's saying i'm going now so i'm gonna look i'm gonna think about it and then i'm gonna package it up and then i'm gonna say goodbye so it is a song of death 
and and you're looking at him going, oh my god, he's he still looks good for however old he was at that point. He still yeah. looks great, but he doesn't look like the David Bowie we all thought. No, and he had the T-shirt song for Norway, didn't he? Yes, which was that little that sort of yes. obviously a very strongly sort of reaching out to Hermione. Um, yes, well, I spoke to her about a year ago. I came across her at a at a, a Tony Visconti concert. So she's come out for years. Nobody was able to get hold of her. And then, you know, she's now been interviewed on TV. She really doesn't do very many interviews at all about him and is is wary, very wary still. But she's still striking, you know. Uh, she looks very similar to the way she did. She's very tall. You know, she's got a long hair. She's tall, you know, and I think David was 5'10 or something. So... I'm pretty sure she must have been at least his high. Anyway, she's, I think, taller, you know. Anyway, she, it was interesting speaking to her as well. Yes, well, absolutely. Anybody who thought that was that close. Because the other, yeah. I mean, the the book is is fascinating, as you say, you know, these snapshots across the decades. Because obviously when he's doing the promotion and interviews, he's he's kind of convinced that the, this work is going to be good. I mean, even those interviews he did in the 80s when he was doing never let me down and tonight he still was really excited and thinking this is going to be good and the concert the glass spider concert is going to be brilliant and he was really backing it and then a few years later really dismisses the whole thing but then it's the the 1980 interviews where he's he's doing the elephant man and then john lennon gets killed and then he sort of sees the front row where john and yoko should have been as well as mark chapman the the killer of john lennon is sitting yeah. there and and that's quite an amazing moment isn't it of yeah you know the, the goodbye to one decade and then here comes the 80s and it's kind if of you, re- you remember you know the impact oh god how would i have been 14 and the impact on us at school of john lennon's death so people who didn't really live through the beatles and then imagine that you know you you were a friend of his a good friend of his and then you know he was shot like that and then you're told, I don't know at what point he found out um, his name was ringed in black by Mark Chapman as a possible target. There were a couple, I think. There was Jodie Foster. I think there was Todd Rundgren, David Bowie, you know. Um, but anyway, um, his girlfriend has said at some point um, Chapman had David Bowie down as the next target. Or I don't know when he told her that. Obviously, must have been some point after. Um, but anyway, he... he um, He's there and he goes on, you know, and they're saying to him, listen, are you sure you want to go on? You, you know, your friend's been shot it's, and it's John, it's John Lennon. Um, and he goes on there and he sees these empty seats, John and Yoko. And then a few seats further along, he sees another empty seat. And that one was reserved for Mark Chapman. And he says, God, I can't tell you how hard it was to continue. And that is amazing. And it's one of the things I think that uh, came out for me, putting all these things together is um, he he was incredible. I thought he was incredibly brave. Um, he hated to let people down. He, I mean, he would just go on stage. Well, we know he now, we now know he, he performed through two heart attacks, not just one. But, you know, it, there was never any thought that he would cancel a show. And it's a terrifying show to be in Broadway as a rock star pretty much doing almost a one-man show, The Elephant Show. It all hinges on you. Um, The knives must have been out for him. Uh, It's scary enough already. And then all this other stuff, if you ever needed an excuse not to go on, you've got it ready (laughs) made. You know what I mean? But he still goes on. He just, 
you know, would never let people down like that. And I thought that that's very, I don't know if that's old school, but that's the real sort of the show must go on, that thing, whatever. You're up there. People have paid. They've come a long way. You owe it to them. Um, and he definitely had that sort of old school backbone. Yeah. I mean, going forward again to that point where, um, yeah, I think it's the Mark Rad- Radcliffe, um, yeah, Mark Riley interview where he just had, a, you know, the relationship, a new child, and then doing this enormous tour around yeah. America and Europe. I often wonder, you know, what was the reason for pushing himself so much and not just saying, we'll just do a few dates here, a few dates there, that's going to be it. But he didn't, he didn't at all. He really pushed himself because they they talk about going to the most obscure places. And it yes. seems really strange at his age to <clears throat> be doing why. that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, do, do, you know, the, the supposition, I have no idea, but maybe it was, you know, the pregnancy was a surprise. And then to organise a concert that size takes a long time. So he's already booked in. I do remember him saying about Glastonbury, um, I can't believe I'm doing this because, you know, um, I want to be with my family. Lexi, I think, was probably a few months old, maybe, at that point. Um, And so, and he was saying, it's taking away precious time. I can't even remember why why or when I accepted doing Glastonbury. So this is Glastonbury, you know, in 2000, when it, it, and it was a huge concert for him. And even then he's sort of thinking, actually, probably if I had my time again, I wouldn't do this. So, and then of course his health is not so great then. Um, I thought he looked great on the videos I've seen, but Mark Riley uh, told me that he actually looked quite pale you look quite ashen. And at one point he says to, to David, um, you know, uh, th- this tour, it's a big one, you know, it's 110 dates or something, the longest of his entire career. Um, aren't you, aren't you finding it exhausting? And Bowie picked up on what he was implying and went, looked at him and looked a bit tetchy, wasn't pleased by the remark. And then turned it into a joke and picked up a pen and went, I can still hold my pen, pretending to be this very frail old man. Um, but he was concerned for him, Riley said. You know, he did look uh, unwell. Um, and clearly that that's his heart. You know, he was having heart issues of some point. Yes, there must have been little rumblings at that point. Yes. It was strange because he, again, was similar age to Meatloaf, who'd had a heart attack or something similar and collapsed on stage after about 20 minutes, but then came back two months later and it, whatever they did, worked straight away whereas you know Bowie it was like oh this is going to be okay he should be all right he'll be back but yeah the mystery of that period will only be known by a few very close friends well, you might be interested because you know like I said at the beginning you know I'm a, a news journalist so I I didn't train as a rock journalist you know I sort of come to this in another way as a as a hard news journalist and Bowie was always interesting for me because there was so much to write about him I liked him um, I, I loved him, but there were, you know, the reason why he's great as a journalist to write about is there's just so many facets to him it, all over the place. But this, this one, I was amazed about that there was so little about his heart attack. So I, I look back and there, there are these videos of him in Prague, and you can you can piece all the, what the announcer's saying, what he's saying, what's going on, and it's really quite phenomenal. He goes off, he comes back, he goes off, he comes back. Um, the 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 bass player she finds a, a stall for him. He's he's saying I've got a I'm in terrible pain. 
um, they've given me some pills for a pinched nerve. I'll do my best. And they applaud him, but then he can't, and he, he leaves, right? Now, they take him to the hospital. So I've got a, a, a friend of mine who works in A&E, uh, and she's a consultant. Um, so I said, listen, um, a 57-year-old comes in, right, 11, 12 o'clock at night into A&E, complaining of severe chest pains. And he said it was in his chest, but spread across his chest, but also his shoulder. Um, complaining of these pains in, in different parts of his body and says, I, I've got a pinched nerve. Can you do anything for it? What do you think? She goes, well, that doesn't sound like a pinched nerve, trap nerve. That's usually in one localized spot. That sounds like a heart attack. So I said, right, what would you do? She said, well, the first thing is you do is you get him uh, an ECG, which is an electrical thing. Say, so why, why are you up? And within 10 yeah. minutes, they can tell how your heart's feeling. It's not always 100%, right? And then the other thing is they do a blood test, which measures for a protein that is produced. Again, it can take two, three hours for, for an accurate result. But usually the two together will, will tell you, right? Now, all I can say is that they let him out. And three days later... He's on stage thinking he's still got a trapped nerve. So all I can say is I don't believe they did either test. So I, anyway, I said to my friend, okay, now the 57-year-old guy who comes in happens to be called David Bowie and is the world's most famous smoker. What do you do now? She said, I do the test faster. Yes. It's so unbelievable to me that David Bowie went into a hospital complaining of chest and shoulder pains and wasn't treated as a suspected heart attack. They, it, it seems astounding. You know, if if you or I go, you sort of go, well, we're just ordinary, you know, they'll think, oh, you know, you waste our time. Can you take a few pills? Will it go? But it seemed astounding to me that that happened and that he was allowed to go back on stage. And of course, that was a serious heart attack then, where he collapses. Yes. And in Germany, no messing. They sort that out, you know. Um, they give him a stent. He's, I presume, within within an hour. I imagine they're doing an angioplasty on him. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, his family must have been absolutely freaking out, wondering yes. what was going on. It's just very strange. It's yes. A, yes. I know. It's like, um, yeah. I mean, a bit like you. You, you sort of with age, but that's not even my profession. But you just think when someone says something like, you know, oh, I got a pain. You think just go to the doctors now. You know, go to yes. A and E. You know, exactly. don't mess around. You know, it's like. Yes. And oh, the first question, you know, are you a smoker to David Bowie? Yes. Right. Oh, well, let's plug you in. You would you would just think it was so automatic. I would love to speak to the doctors. That's what I'd love to do. Go back to that, that find out, find his medical records. I just think that'd be very interesting what wow. happened because yes. I find it so incredible. It's it very, a, it's bizarre. Yeah. So with, with doing the book, because obviously it took a long time to put it all together. And, you know, talking about Bowie's phenomenal work rate, I mean, in the 70s, I mean, obviously there was the 60s period, which you've got a few interviews, but then the 70s, you know, he does basically 10 albums in 10 years. He produces several other albums, world tours, relocates, gets married, gets divorced, has a child, make, you know, makes several films and then appears on Broadway and, yes. and you know, has amazing musical, you know, ch changes, doesn't he, in styles. Did you find with his interviews, how did they change during that kind of incredibly intense 10 years um he always believes in himself i think he's always interesting he's always committed 
it, it's only later in one interview he does in the about 1990 that he says there was a period where he gave you know he was so dis disillusioned with music but that's later where he seriously considered giving it up um yeah and he's it's he had a reputation as being difficult and evasive there's some there's some stuff of him on the tube with um Paulie Yates, where he looks to be being quite difficult. But then again, she's not making it easy either. No. Uh, but actually, what's interesting to me is how helpful he is. And as somebody whose job it is to interview people, you can ask, um, you can ask occasionally rubbish questions, or you start and you're going somewhere and you're going, where am I going with this? And you end and you haven't quite asked a question. And I hear that sometimes from the BBC DJs. But he always picks it up. He always tries to pick up the meaning, tries to give him an interesting answer, tries to sort of add a bit of humor. You know, there's there's certain off limits, generally. Um, his personal life, I think, in terms of his family, not his drug addiction or what happened there or his alcoholism. He's or his bisexuality, which he his goes. Bisexuality. Bisexuality. He's incredibly open in a way. Yeah, trisexual. Well, we still don't know. And, you know, I sort of wonder whether he knows. And I I think he, you know, most of us as adolescents, we try on different uh, personalities and clothing and attitudes. And we eventually say, oh, well, this is sort of who I am. And da, 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 da. But I think he carried on through almost all his 20s doing that. I think that there's this element if he's still trying to, you know, find out a bit more i don't know if it's just pushing the limits or just trying to find out mm. what it's like is he funny or is he trying to be funny there's a lot you know sometimes his humor feels forced but in the 80s he's laughing all the time and he he's a natural you know some of his interviews in the in the 90s with mark radcliffe and mark riley are hysterical he's easily as funny as they are and they are very very funny guys you know um so yeah he 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 does change a bit but he's always interesting and i think there are very few people like him i think john lennon was one and i i'm sort of struggling for the others because you think oh bob dylan but he's not bob dylan just shuts down you know yes. um he's always fascinating and he's intellectual i think generally without being pretentious. I think sometimes that's been labelled against him by some detractors, but I didn't find that at all, you know. In well, it's interesting because Chris Roberts, who wrote for The Melody Maker, and he's done several books, the last one on The Velvet Under Underground, he said that it's quite amazing being interviewing Bowie because the charm offensive was just overwhelming. That He said that he you just don't know, but he knows what you spoke about in the last interview could have been years ago, you know, where your children went to school, how your wife was. It was almost like Coco, the famous assistant, has kind of, he always thought, she's just said, right, this is Chris, blah, 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 blah. Hit him with that, you know, get him on side. Then, and he said, you know, it was amazing. You know, he, he was so excited. He said, look, I've got this new record. Do you want to hear it? You know, and he's like, David Bowie's asked me if I want to hear this new record. He's like, of course I do, you know. And the album wasn't that he was promoting, wasn't that good, but you're not going to. Of course you're not. <laughs> uh... <laughs> You know, whereas when he did Lou Reed, you know, Lou would be there going, 
Well, the question started well, but they've gone really downhill, haven't they? You know, or you'd say a lot of people have been saying this and Lou would go, well, who? Who are they? Who are those people being saying? You know, and it's like immediately on the back foot or this guy the other night said, you know, five days of my life is one year of yours. You know, it was almost like, you know, Lou just gives you those kind of comments. But at the same time, you think, God, this is really hard work. We're not having jollies here, are we? You know, so David was the charm offensive, wasn't he? Yes, and you can look at that in two ways, can't you? Like you're saying, he's been prepped by Coco. He cares about publicity, wants good publicity. But actually, he genuinely does seem such a, a likable, warm character. I know he went through his periods of, you know, depression and isolation in the 70s, but he really does seem liked and genuinely interested, you know, in people, that warmth, which is not something that is the first thing you associate with his image you know, the thin white duke and all that, that sort of stuff, alien beings and all the rest of it. But there, there is a lot of warmth, I think, that comes through, you know, through with his interviews. He likes to have fun. He likes to get on with people. He loved being pally with the two marks, you know, and would ask them to um, open up, you know, to introduce him on stage. And I think they were both pissed at one, so drunk that they rambled on and on. They, I don't know how long for, in the pouring rain in Manchester, which isn't lovely. And um, he still, next time he saw them, it's hand around the shoulder. You know, he's going off. He's about to appear on stage any second, but he stops. He goes, here's the set list. Do you think this is the right order? You know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And, you know, just lovely and yeah, warm, and that's great, you know. Yes, yes. exactly. I, he does. He does I, do it well. But there's the there's the other ones which I find quite irritating. The Jonathan Ross and there's Chris Evans as well, where he just becomes a bit too surreal or a bit too silly, and it's like that's not the interview you want. And those guys are quite hard work. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, there's one he talks about pigeons in his loft, and it all goes very surreal and playing a didgeridoo uh, with Jonathan Ross. And I think the thing with Jonathan Ross is he his, his mind is so quick. It, there's never a pause for thought. It's bang, 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 bang. Um, so that's just almost air-filling, isn't it? Yes, it, 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 it's, it's like this isn't really, because everybody wants to, know, to kind yeah. of know the real David. You know, it's like we all want to know. We kind of want to know your general life. You know, it's fantastic that... Tony Visconti's told us that you like Weetabix before you go to bed at night and, yeah. you know, <laughs> things like that. You know, it's like, what do you do? What 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 is it that really makes you tick? Yeah. You're such a curious character who's got all these interests. And I went to that Sotheby's exhibition with all that artwork and you're thinking, this is a lot of artwork you bought, even if you're not that, you know, you are interested. And I went to the exhibition at the V&A and again, it was like, wow, you have really consumed and taken in a lot of stuff that you, you're obviously very obsessed with and have amazing ability to store stuff as well because there's so much gear here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where he stored all that stuff. I mean, there was two things. I think Jonathan Ross asked him once, did he know how to use the washing machine? And he said, of course not. And I love that. And you know what? I bet it's true. And Jonathan Ross sort of replied, that's just what we would hope. And of course it is. You don't want David Bowie knowing how to use a washing machine. And did he also ask him about changing nappies as well? There was somebody who mentioned nappies and he said, no, I leave that to the wife, which is like, you know, you think, David, don't you could blow it all here with a terrible comment. But, you know, somehow it, it doesn't go down that gender stereotype too far. No, he did a period with modern painters for about a year and he interviewed and wrote loads of articles with a load of famous 
modern painters. And that's very interesting. Um, and one of the things I think is interesting, I was saying he never got pretentious, but some of his questions I didn't understand in that. And that that could be because I'm not bright enough easily. But it it did strike me that sometimes there, that's where he worried. I think he only got one O level. And I wonder in the back of his mind, sometimes in certain situations where he maybe felt he wasn't as intelligent as that crowd in that area. And actually he was, you know, and eventually that those often those interviews where he relaxes becomes they they become much they become really fascinating as one with an ancient an old painter who's now dead Baltus, and that is very interesting. But there are other ones where there's one with Roy Lichtenstein, and it's almost too oh god, it, it's too pointy headed, and it's pop art. So Lichtenstein, <laughs> well, I just painted what I saw, David. Yeah, and he's trying to get into sort to, to be cerebral about it, but he's an American painter of pop art and there doesn't get anybody you don't get more basic than that yes. you know it's all simple stuff well people just see mickey mouse and mcdonald's don't they they don't see le corbusier so i paint mickey mouse and mcdonald's it's that simple and but and david's trying to you know both trying to make it much more into this huge theoretical construct but it ain't there for roy lichtenstein at least no. the artist you mentioned before Balth balthus Balth yeah. Has he got a son called that goes by the name of Prince Stash, who appears quite a lot at the moment on various social media platform sites, who's a who was obviously a dandy, but is now still a dandy, but a bit older. No idea. That would be interesting. <laughs> no, there's a curious character that has has kind of been appearing a bit on social media with great stories of hanging out with Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd and the uh, the Beatles and Hendrix, all that. Anyway, that was uh, that, that name just rung a bell. So the other thing with Bowie, apart from giving good interviews, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but he's obsessed with photographers and having his photograph taken, doesn't he? Where where does I mean? Because I have been, you know, obviously getting every book that comes out on Bowie. It, there's a lot, isn't there, of books written about him, but a lot of photographers. He obviously loves it. Did you ever? get a feeling or a reason why what, the image what was so important for him as the image because there's no other artist has ever had that amount of photography taken of somebody in different outfits in different periods no even it, when he was even when he was about to die he still had his photograph taken without socks brave it's almost like he can disassociate himself i mean you think of when did he refuse a photo Almost never. I don't think ever. And you think of how many days, even somebody like David Bowie must look bad. But he's he never, he never, it's almost like despite he, he was never vain, despite having wanting all the, you know, being happy to be photographed all the time. Because if you're vain, you would sometimes call off the photo shoot or say this lighting isn't right, or I'm feeling not up to it. But I don't think he ever, ever did that. So in a way. He must be, it must have been separated from his view of himself and the image, unlike most of us who panic about it and deliberately take fuzzy photos of our, ourselves at a long distance, you know. Um, and I wonder, you know, maybe this is part of this, this person. I don't know, this is reading too much into it, but, you know, David Bowie was somebody who I always thought it felt he was a person who was in search of himself, 
Now, I don't think that's um, uh, uh, autistic or anything, but I think he was a he was a young man who tried out everything to see whether it chimed with him or not and who he was. I think he took that search to find out who he was very, very seriously. And I think it baffled him more than it does most of us. Most of us happy, we just say, oh yeah, you know, I like this, that, and the other. I like football, I like having a drink, you know, I like, a, 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 I've, I've got a, a sense of humor, you know. But I, I don't, you know, I think with him, it was it was it was it was different. So I wonder whether, you know, he sees all these images of himself. They're interesting to him, like it would be looking at a different person. Oh, now and you look at that and maybe you're you're look, you know, you're looking at that and you're, you're not particularly connected to it. You know, so you're not uh, uh, worried about whether it was a nice hair day or a bad hair day. If he yes. ever had it. Yes. He, he never, well, apart from the Glastonbury 2000, which was a disaster, ah. <laughs> that was not a good hair day. But it's interesting because he, he's, you know, from the very first period, you know, when he wasn't really David Bowie, he, he still, you know, it's still a book of his photographs that he's got and, you know, ever right to the end. And yet, you know, it's just kind of a curious one that you think this is, no other artist has ever had that amount of interest in himself. And I suppose, as you were saying, you know, the way he wanted to discover himself. And there aren't, with a lot of rock pop artists, there isn't that sense that people, after a while, they think, you know, I've had enough. You know, I don't want to explore anymore. I don't want to discover anything not more. But but we never did. He just felt like he was always going to be reading something, looking at a, you know, a film, going to an art gallery. And when I listen to those very early interviews with Morrissey in the 80s, you think, God, this is such a curious brain, this this person. I mean, if he died then, we would have been like, what would have happened to this? The potential is amazing. And the reality is like, oh, dear, that's so bad. Who knows? But you, we we never know how things, ha you know, go, do we? No. And I don't, yeah, I, I know Bowie felt, when he was younger, he had a friend, George Underwood, and George Underwood, he thought was the better looking one. And George Underwood was the one that the first promoters pushed as the person they thought could make it on his own. And but for example, my wife thinks David Bowie is very, very odd looking. She laughs if I say he's he's good looking. She just cannot see it at all. And and it's true. He goes from a certain type of incredible beauty to a really weird alien look and odd, you know, and I wonder whether that helped him slightly be free of an obsession with how he looked because he didn't seem to be too bothered. You know, um, many people who are very good looking grow up to be obsessed with how good looking they are and can't stand aging. They can't stand that 1% diminution every year. He didn't care, uh, I, as far as I can tell. And those last videos, are truly, truly astounding. Now, if Paul McCartney looks great, goes on a video, you know, he still wouldn't, you know, we're, we're sort of expecting it, but he wouldn't do, I'm looking, I'm on my deathbed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With very, I mean, maybe they put a little bit of makeup on Bowie, but it doesn't look like it. And it doesn't look like he was at all bothered. And he must have known it would have come as a, a surprise to see, for people to see him after. 15 years of nothing yes ab ab absolutely absolutely did you i mean with with also with the putting this book together did you sort of 
look at people's questions and different presenters and and were there any particular ones that you thought god they were really great yes presenters and uh inquiring minds from the bbc no yeah no i did no my- <laughs> No, I did. I mean, I I love the Courtney Pine stuff because it's all about jazz and and that that's surprising. None of that was known to me. And Mark Riley and Mark Radcliffe always really good, I thought. Um, But some of the (coughs) the most interesting ones are often with the people who don't really get David Bowie at all, can't understand why they're interviewing a a pop star. There's a lovely one he does with Valerie Singleton. Oh, yes, Valerie. Ever got you? I don't remember her sounding so posh. It's like people got more posh, even more posh now. I listen to him, but she says something like, "She she refers to him in the third person always." So he's in front of her, and she goes, "Um, does David Bowie need for anything? Does David Bowie want for anything?" And he goes, "Yeah, a train ticket to Penge, which is great." And then she says to him, "Um, because you know a lot of people, David Bowie." think rock stars are a bit thick uh, are you a bit thick i'm sure there's more to you than that and he goes oh no i'm very thick and those things are lovely <laughs> and just completely blow it out of the water i just saw some of the funniest moments and it says so much more about the bbc and the presenter and the times than it does about Bowie those interviews and that's lovely that was part of this thing of course because you got the BBC on one side and you got Bowie on the other and while the BBC could be very alternative in some ways and put out challenging stuff a lot of it it was hugely establishment you know he appears on Nationwide at the height of the Ziggy thing and Brian Falk is a is a journalist now Brian Falk won an award and went to jail for keeping his sources secret to do with um, Northern Ireland He's a hard-bitten proper journalist, but he he decides to have a go at Bowie, calling him a pasty-faced freak with skinny legs. And he has a go at these 14, 15-year-old fans that are outside. And he's just constantly trying to have a go. What are you doing here? Why are you hanging out? Oh, yeah. Isn't it demeaning for you? Why are you doing this? And one eventually has enough and goes, why do you think? And that's great. Um, but he also is a smart bloke. So he goes, you know, Bowie's saying something, you know, about his performance. And he goes, and I just try on different character, you know, a different character, this and the other. He says, so he goes, you mean less like a singer, more like an actor. And Bowie goes, exactly. And starts talking about me now. And it's straight away, this whole book opens up on Bowie. You suddenly see him not as a rock star, but as an actor who happens to sing and go on stage in what is a standard sort of rock star form. And then that era and his time makes much more sense. If you see him as an actor first, I think Ziggy Stardust begins to make sense much more. If you see him as a rock star trying to expand the boundaries of rock, it all becomes a bit Tommy-like, you know, and all that. But it's not like that. It was something else. Yes, I do remember, I think, probably in the late 70s on some European TV program where the person says the same thing. He said, yeah, that's right. I'm not a pop star. I'm I'm acting, you know, and, it, and he's often said that 
he didn't want to sing his own songs because he didn't like his voice, he, but no one else would. So he ends up doing it and obviously has that thing of needing to perform and then has, you know, Angie and then has Tony DeFries and all those main man, you know, Tony Zanetta characters who create, help him have that confidence to come from folky David to, you know, otherworldly David with the, you know, the, the sci-fi image and it kind of it does make sense but it's not probably that deep and meaningful it's probably just lots of little bits put together by his kind of team of people yeah well i think the part of that is is he a natural performer is a great question so he gives brilliant performances but you know you mentioned little richard at the beginning so totally natural exactly what you expect from a frontman extrovert who dominates the stage with their charisma and personality i don't know about Bowie's early concerts, he clearly had certain things, a certain way about him, but it's almost like he's constantly learning that craft like an actor. He learns to be a performer. You know, I, maybe they all do. Maybe I'm exaggerating that. But um, you, you, you feel it, it's only later, I think, in some of those, you know, he does a, a Bowie at the BBC in 2000 and he does some of these later concerts where he starts talking a lot to the audience and it seems completely natural. You know, it's maybe in the later eighties or the nineties, the two thousands. And then you see him completely, absolutely at home. You know, he doesn't seem to be trying to put on any airs graces. He's still got it. He doesn't need to do a lot with a microphone. He never really did. He's got a little strange sort of shimmy with his hips. He sort of can dance. That's another thing. He sort of can dance and sort of not. <laughs> he looks totally robotic and odd and then periods where he suddenly comes on and he starts swinging around you go my god that guy can really move his hips um and i can, I, I still can't work that one out whether he was a great dancer or not really he just had his own odd way of moving like ian curtis or something like that but it was charismatic Yes, that's okay. Yeah, but I think he spent his 60s in apprenticeship land, didn't he? He was in lots of different bands and he was working with Lindsay Kemp and he was going to lots of performance art events in London as well as going doing the arts lab as well. So, you know, and enjoying people. There was a band called Comus, which was one of these kind of weird folk bands but brought in sort of prog and very you know very avant-garde and I think he was kind of curious with that kind of sound and that quality that I think he was just very thinking I've got to try and make it because I can't go back to a day job and I think there was that element of what next and then you know then Angie appears and things start to shape up yeah exactly yeah she was vital but I love it about people who make make something big and I I wonder whether there's a, a an often common denominator is they they made it so big or seemingly so successful in this area because they had no choice. And Bowie says to a friend of his, might be in George Underwood at the time, who was a he was doing painting, and he he said, you know, George, you've got your painting, but I've got nothing else. If this doesn't work out, he's still a teenager. I've got nowhere else to turn. Every egg was in the basket. And when you're in something so competitive as trying to be a rock star you know, and make money selling your own records and performing, you know, it, it, you've got to put in everything, presumably everything you've got, because the competition is fierce. Every kid was dreaming of that, you know. And so, the clock was ticking. And and it was Bill Shankly when he was you know, talking about growing up in, in his place in town in Scotland. He said, you either work down the pit or you became a football player. And obviously, most people ended up in the pit, but 
that was probably quite a big incentive, wasn't it? To put put a quite a, a big push to be a football player. You know, you weren't going to just think, oh, I can't be bothered. It's a bit wet. It's a bit cold. It's a bit windy. It's like it's that or the pit. And you just think, OK, let's let's do the pit. Uh, let's do the football. <laughs> when you've got a taste for it, you know, um, so he is he does prog rock. I mean, we think of prog rock as being so I don't know if it's coming back in a bit, but, you know, it was so anathema to, you know, people anybody after 1977 but he does his sort of prog rock the man who sold the world album so he's literally trying absolutely everything um interestingly enough uh, you know ziggy stardust i mean he tries his songwriter album hunky dory which is a lovely album but still doesn't cr really crack it for him incredibly i mean that's such an incredible album i don't know why um but ziggy stardust he, i wonder that does seem that doesn't seem to be chasing particularly an audience. That seems to be chasing an interesting co uh, concept, an idea. I mean, in hindsight, I know there was T-Rex and all the rest of it, but I, it seems to be a bit more out there. Um, and that's, of course, that's the one that cracks it for him. Yes, uh, absolutely. And how do you think, how do you... How did he manage to be so creative during that period where you got an album out, you're touring it, and then come straight in with Aladdin Sane and then straight in with another album? How do you feel he managed to do that? I, I think part of, well, I actually think him his his era is a brilliant songwriter. That era around Hunky Dory and Space Oddity, those are the life on Mars and those sort of changes, those song songs, classic songs in a sort of, Carol King sense. Yeah. He never matches that. And I, but he probably didn't want to. Um, but um, I think what he does and uh, is interesting to me is he just lets other people do a huge amount of work. So I think a lot of bands get stuck on, oh, God, that's not quite the right drum. Let me have a go. They're, they're, you know, and the hours and hours on the bloody drum or the sound of the snare or whatever it is, or this, we need something in the bass. No, you know, and you get stuck on bits and pieces. He seemed to have immense faith in his band. And I think they probably deserved a lot more when it comes to songwriting credits than they were given. They did get quite a lot of songwriting credits, but perhaps even more, you know, he's just going, oh, you know, I imagine this. Um, here I've got a song on acoustic guitar, you know, here I've got a, an idea for a lyric. Or you start, you've you spent two days working on stuff. What have you got? Let's have a listen. Can I put something over it? You know, um, so it's very collaborative. And he surrounded himself with these incredible musicians and kept changing it a little. Um, so he's always getting... I think people, if they with David Bowie for a week, they're on their best form, aren't they? Crikey, yes. they're being their best stuff to the table. They're probably not even going to sell, save it for their solo album. They're <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna be so desperate. So he's very smart in getting those people and getting the best. I mean, fame is a Carlos Alomar riff. Yes, you know, I don't know who does the riff to Ashes to Ashes. You know, but um, a load of stuff. You know, um, fashion. That the sound to that and the guitaring, you know, eh, the, the lyrics are brilliant, but that that's Frib. Yes. You know, easily 50-50, these songs, easy. You know, Lennon's just doing all his stuff and he goes solo. It's all him pretty much, isn't it? It's just Lennon and a piano and a guitar and some backing band. 
you know, and possibly Earl Slick, but um, yes, yeah. on on your but but yeah, you're right. He had that ability. I'm sure he didn't think of it at the time of getting those brilliant players and really squeezing them dry, and then going, "Thanks, I'm going to do my next album next." You know, it's a bit strange, you know. But I'm. It, it sounds quite ruthless, and it obviously wasn't because they loved it. But he really does get, you know, like you said, Fripp to come along and just say, "Play that guitar," you know, and. You know, Fripp was like, okay, I'll give you this guitar. I can't remember the phrase, but Fripp has a brilliant phrase, doesn't it? Like when when you've heard one of my riffs, you know you've been fucked or something like that. You know, it's like one of those. He he rates himself, doesn't he? But it's one of those ones, you know, it's like it is it's kind of there. But you know, all the time he he was always looking for his Jeff Beck and he found Mick Ronson, then he had Earl Slick, and then he had, you know, various other people throughout the Pete Frampton. <laughs> not such a great one but um yes it was it was kind of interesting his ability and then he also brought in the jazz with uh, garson as well which kind of brings another style to it so uh there you go yeah 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 <laughs> um i think he was sort of hard you know he, he had that reputation where he, he dumped the spiders you know from mars um and was was cold and ruthless but i i, I think that's sort of you i don't know what was going on there uh in particular i mean but my impression of him certainly afterwards is he stays with a lot of these musicians and he keeps bringing them back and pete frampton is quite interesting you know there's a guy who found it hard to get a gig with anybody because everybody remembered him as this you know perm-headed guy who had a this one particular song with this sort of strange wah-wah mouth thing whatever that was but it's a great song um and david goes i don't care you're coming on me, you know, you're coming with me. He didn't ask him to change his haircut or his style of playing or anything, you know, just get the Nafis guitar. Yeah. doesn't matter, Peter, you, you know, we're pals come here, you know, and, um, well, think- it was, it was quite loyal because his father had been the English, you know, the art teacher and he, so he, he had to sort of, yeah, he was doing a massive favor and he loved the herd, didn't he as well? And small faces. And I think, I think during that period, I mean, it was kind of interesting. I saw, this serious moonlight and then the glass spider tour and both were just so big you know there wasn't really that atmosphere that you would have wanted and then i saw the reality tour and that was you know in the, at wembley and that was fantastic so it's um yeah and the, and the glastonbury one i went to see as well and that was again fantastic so but they were they were probably too big to really say wow that was you, you know you had that boiling hot experience that you do at a a smaller venue yes Dear old David, there you go. So look, this is marvellous. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for this. And um, what are you working on? Have you got another book in the pipeline? Or Yeah, well, possibly. So um, might might well do Kate Bush at the BBC. So we'll see how that goes. Because oh, but... there was a book recently, wasn't there, on Kate Bush? Yes. Tom. Yeah. Was it Tom? I can't remember. Actually, the, the the period that I think is fascinating with Bowie, going back actually, just is that Sombrero Club, you know, the, the Freddie Beretti period with Wendy and various other kind of freaks and interesting people where they hadn't made it and they were just kind of and Dana Gillespie and all that bunch. I think the Sombrero Club period is is, is just so fascinating and the, the Freddie Beretti character as well, which, you know, because David wanted him to be the star, by the way. He wanted to write him, you know, write for Freddie, but Freddie was no singer. So um, that one, and then he disappears and no one knows where he went. And he went to, his, you know, Israel and then he came to France and then dies, Freddie. That, that, that's partly, you know, it's like anything with these big 
stars, you know, how do you do their life? Um, and I haven't seen Velvet a Goldmine, but, you know, that's the sort of thing you want to take, though, that little moment, um, you know, perhaps when things are haven't quite happened for them. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it? Yes. I often thought of John Lennon's thing, the most interesting film would be him, you know, when he's locked away, 1975 to 80. What on earth did he do for five years? And apparently he he made bread. and He made bread. With, you know, his his son and Sean. And he, but I just think that'd be so interesting, his life. As, you know, the most famous rock star on the planet has just managed to go completely incognito for five years. And on that bombshell, we'll leave it. Anyway, a massive thank you to Tom Hagler for giving me the time for that interview. Talking about his book, Bowie at the BBC, A Life in Interviews. It's really worth checking out and uh, buying a copy available from all good bookshops and probably online as well. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy, please. <laughs> Otherwise, don't bother. Um, and also, all these interviews have been archived. Yes, indeed. Find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Make a note. Anyway, have a great week. And stay safe.